Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author who spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. I'm also happy to say that he happens to be my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I have to say I'm really delighted by our guest. Uh, he's legendary. I was doing a little bows in advance when we got started, so <laughs> I'm very, very, very delighted to have this opportunity to talk with him today. Yeah, same. And today, as you said, we have the pleasure of welcoming an absolute expert on positive psychology, leadership, and the pursuit of happiness and well-being altogether, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. Dr. Ben Shahar is the best selling author of six books, founder of the Happiness Studies Academy, and former prof- professor of two of the largest courses in Harvard's history Positive Psychology and the Psychology of Leadership. These days, he consults, lectures, and teaches around the world on a variety of topics, including leadership, happiness, education, and the science of behavior change. Before we get to Tall, quick reminder about Rick's Positive Neuroplasticity Training online course. It's a six-week course focused on helping people achieve change that lasts. If you're interested in it, you can learn more through the link in the description of today's episode, and podcast listeners can use the coupon code BEWELL50 to get an extra $50 off the already discounted price. Also, a reminder that the podcast recently crossed 1 million downloads, and to celebrate, we're doing a giveaway. Five winners will receive hardcover copies of Rick's new book, Neurodharma and Resilient, which Rick and I wrote together. They'll also get a card deck of daily practices based on Rick's book, Just One Thing. And finally, they'll receive a small signed print from Rick. If you'd like to enter the contest, you can just follow the link in the description of today's podcast. All that said, we are truly so happy to welcome Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar to the podcast today. So Tal, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Forrest. Thank you, Rick. A real honor to be here. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'd love to start just by learning a bit more about your background, you and your work. And specifically, I mean, you could have done a lot of great work in a lot of great arenas. Why did these topics of happiness and maybe even positive psychology more broadly kind of draw your attention in the first place? Yeah, so I became interested in happiness because of my own unhappiness. Mm. I found myself I was in my second year at Harvard studying computer science, uh, doing very well academically, doing well in athletics. I was playing squash, um, doing quite well socially, and yet being very unhappy. Mm. It didn't make any sense to me because, you know, as far as I was concerned, I'd checked all the boxes. Um, and uh, because from the outside, things looked great. From the inside, they were far from it. And I remember just one day, very cold Boston morning, going to my academic advisor and telling her that I'm switching majors. She said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science, moving over to philosophy and psychology. Um, And she she asked me why. And I said, because I have two questions. First question, why aren't I happy? Second question, how can I become happier? And it's with these two questions that I then went on to get my undergraduate degree, uh, as well as my graduate degrees, all the time focusing on how can I help myself, individuals, um, couples, uh, families, and organization increase their levels of well-being. That that was 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
No, I think it's a wonderful story, and thank you for sharing it. I think that that question of like, why am I not happier, is such a central driving one, and I'm really glad that you've kind of organized your your thinking around it here. Yeah, Tal, I've got a couple of questions, uh, sort of in sequence. So the first one is, what do you mean by happiness? Yeah, so you know, happiness is uh, is difficult to define. You know, many people have given up on trying to define it, saying you know it's a little bit like beauty. You basically know it when you see it or experience it. Uh, and yet, I think it is very important to define it because um, uh, if we do define it, we know what we're looking for. So the way I define happiness today uh, draws on um, the definition of Helen Keller who says, uh, the only definition of happiness that I can think of is happiness as wholeness, W-H, wholeness. And and I agree with that because I think what we need to do is look at the whole person well-being. If Mm -hmm. we are to um, speak about happiness and pursue happiness in in an effective way. Um, So the whole person would be a spiritual well-being. That's one element. Another element would be physical well-being. Uh, another one would be intellectual well-being. Then there is relational, interpersonal well-being. And finally, emotional well-being. So it's these uh, five elements, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional, that make up our whole person. And well-being in each of these areas, um, the uh, additive uh, value would be, uh, would be a happy life. Not perfectly in, any, in every area, of course, but, it, but at least some. As you, as you well know, there's a common distinction between hedonic well-being and eudaimonic well-being. Hedonic well-being being more the pleasure of having a good meal with others, feeling loved, uh, a sense of uh, getting things done over the day. And then eudaimonic well-being being less governed by positive emotions and more about a sense of meaning and purpose. I, I think about the distinction between, uh, or the times when I was walking Forrest up and down the hallway when he was a little kid at three in the morning, he was an infant, <laughs> and, and there was not a lot of hedonic well-being at three in the morning, but boy, was there a sense of fulfillment and meaning and purpose. And one thing I've encountered is a privileging of you of eudaimonic well-being, as it were, as if it's somehow better, and a kind of embarrassment in the field of happiness research and positive psychology about actually just talking about hedonic well-being. Um, as a kind of preempting of the critique that, oh, you just want to, you know, be selfish for yourself and so forth. And I wonder if you could just speak to this distinction between hedonic and eudaimonic well-being. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. I mean, there, there is so much to it, of course. And um, the, the way I see it is that it's not either or, meaning that they need to coexist for a happy life. And let me give an extreme example, but, uh, but, but I believe it's a telling one. So, you know, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning talks about how what saved his life and, and many uh, people's lives was the fact that he was able to find meaning even in his uh, real, you know, terrible uh, existence being in, a, in the Holocaust in a concentration camp. So he experienced meaning. But to say about Viktor Frankl or, or anyone else who spent time with him in, in Auschwitz, to say that they were, were happy would be, you know, a real uh, stretch. So it's not just meaning that that is important. It's also our our emotions. Um, now, sometimes, as was uh, you know, and, and I think it's a great example. You know, walking forest at um, three a.m. in the morning. Thanks for that, forest. 
<laughs> you gave your body up for science, Forrest. <laughs> Where would we be today without it, right? So um, I think it's a great example because, yes, it's not pleasurable to, 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 to be woken up in the middle of the night, and yet it's very meaningful. And therefore, in that context, it certainly trumps the, um, you know, the, the, the pleasurable. Um, the meaningful trumps the pleasurable. However, ideally, ideally, we want to be able to experience both, sometimes not yeah. at the same time. And there were many pleasurable moments, you know, when, when Forrest, you know, s uh, smiled or laughed or learned a new word. You know, these were not just meaningful. Well, this then feeds into the second question. Lots of people are dealing with difficult circumstances uh, inside themselves and their bodies and outside themselves. Uh, that's been the case certainly throughout history. In the present moment in America, I live in California. Uh, we're dealing with wildfires. Uh, looking out my window looks like a scene from Blade Runner. You know, the skies are orange and dark. It's really weird. And so here, too, is a, is a natural critique that comes up around positive psychology that says, how can you possibly be happy when you're dealing with all that or when you know that other people, let's say, are, are dealing with racial injustice or wealth inequality and, and all the rest of that? So I wondered here, too, if you could speak to the possibility of finding, at a minimum, eudaimonic well-being amidst really difficult circumstances. Yeah, so th the first thing, be before I even get to the uh, eudaimonic, the meaning aspect of it, uh, I do want to talk about emotions because there is a real misunderstanding about happiness. And that is that a happy life means being happy all the time. And, of course, when they say that, they mean happiness as pleasure. You know, I... I, I I always remind my students that at the beginning, at the very beginning of the course, or, or um, you know, when when I teach it to a new audience at the very beginning of the lecture, um, a happy life doesn't mean being exempt from painful emotions. Uh, there are only two kinds of people who don't experience painful emotions, such as sadness or anxiety or anger or or, or envy. Two kinds: the psychopaths and the dead. And, uh, and if we experience painful emotions at times, it's actually a good sign. It means, you know, we're not a psychopath and, and we're alive. So, <laughs> so, so that's the first thing to keep in mind. You know, difficult experiences are part and parcel of every life. And I'll, I'll take it even a step further and say that the first step to happiness is allowing in unhappiness. Hmm. Because if, if, if you think about it, and I know there's a lot of talk uh, about this uh, in Buddhism and recently more and more in, uh, in academic research about there being two levels of suffering. The, the first level of suffering is inevitable. You know, the, yeah. uh, the Dalai Lama experiences it. The Buddhist metaphor was the first dart, the first arrow, the first dart. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, Mathieu Ricard experiences it. And, you know, it's when, when we encounter something that is sad or when we... Uh, um, when, when, when we're just in a bad mood because these things happen. So that's the first level. The second level occurs when we reject the first level. So, you know, mm -hmm. if, um, if I say to myself, I have studied positive psychology, I'm an expert in happiness, I shouldn't be anxious now during COVID-19 or, or at any other time, that is a prescription for the second level of, of yeah. suffering. It's a prescription for unhappiness. In other words, we first need to embrace it. And, you know, I love... Uh, Rumi's poem called The Guest House, uh, where, he, uh, where he talks about embracing, accepting, inviting in all thoughts, all, all emotions. And because he understood, you know, 800 years ago or so, that rejecting these emotions, these thoughts only leads to their in intensification. You have a lovely phrase, giving yourself permission to be human. 
yeah, I see that as the um, as the foundation. I see it as the foundation now. Thirty years uh, studying this field, as as I saw it at the at the beginning. First of all, accept, embrace the emotions, and then we can talk. So so let's talk about the um, you know what. So what do you do when the world around you is uh, uh, is in chaos, as so many things are today? You know, one one of my uh, my friends recently said to me, he said, "Tal, you know, during this COVID nineteen, I think maybe you should quarantine happiness." And um, <laughs> and you know the, the the same sentiment applies also. Well, you know when things are not going well in society, you know let's put it inside and wait for better times. And my response to that is absolutely not, because when we cultivate happiness, what we're doing is we're actually helping ourselves better deal with difficult experiences, and not only that, helping others deal with difficult experiences. You know, you see this connection, for instance. When I increase levels of well-being, I'm more likely to give, to contribute, to help others. Um, then if, you know, if I'm in a good mood, I'm uh, more likely to be creative, to come up with um, out-of-the-box solutions. So wherever you look, increasing levels of happiness is good, not just um, for me as an individual, i.e. it's not just a selfish thing. It is. Uh, it also contributes to other people and to society. I'll say even more. I even think the distinction between selfish and selfless is not helpful. I would rather um, bring the two together and talk about self-full or self-fullness as the uh, integration of being concerned for the self, increasing my own happiness, and through that also um, being concerned with other people being selfful. Could you, just to finish here, imagine a, an example, kind of a hypothetical. Let's say someone is grappling day to day with really stressful, difficult circumstances, economic issues, concern for their health, they're busy, they're stressed, they're having a hard time. Their, their heart is heavy with worry for the world too. You know, they have compassion for other people. Okay. This person who is a lot like me, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> is, is this a little what research a is research going on here, Dad? Is that what's happening? What's yeah, what the line? Research is me search, but anyway. <laughs> what would you, what are some of the kinds of things practically in the frame that you've laid out very well, beautifully? What what are the kinds of things practically such a person could do to promote? their own happiness broadly, taking into account both the dimension of hedonic well-being and eudaimonic well-being? What are, what are some things they could actually do that you've seen work for people or yourself? So the, um, the, the first thing in, in, in the spirit of giving ourselves the permission to be human is uh, to express emotions rather than suppress mm -hmm. them. And that would be, for instance, uh, um, shedding a tear or talking to, to someone about it, whether it's a partner or a therapist or you know, a dear friend. Um, third, writing about it. So there's some great research uh, coming out of uh, the University of Texas and, and other universities around the world today on the, the impact of journaling, so writing mm -hmm. about difficult experiences. That is a form of expressing emotions, giving ourselves yeah. the permission to be human. Um, next, uh, moving. You know, the mind-body connection, um, whether it's a regular physical exercise or even less than physical exercise. So this, you know, this is research I love, came out of the University of Cambridge, uh, showing that people who 
every half hour or so, just get up and move and, you know, take 10, 20, 30 steps are actually overall happier than people who are sedentary and sit down for hours on, on end. You know, more and more doctors today are talking about sitting as the new smoking. Mm. Now, uh, I, I looked at the data and I think it's a little bit exaggerated, but, but not much. So there is, a, there is a lot to it. So moving around uh, is important. And by the way, when, when we're feeling down, we want to stay down, sit down, and we need to counter that. Uh-huh. Another thing to do is, you know, ask Oprah, express gratitude. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I started doing the gratitude exercise um, back on the 19th of September, 1999. Now, the research on gratitude came out in 2003. So many people ask me, wow, you started before the research? I said, yeah, Oprah told me to do it. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So expressing gratitude, you know, that. Many people, you know, how is it that a two-minute, three-minute intervention, such as the gratitude exercise, how can that contribute to well-being? And the answer is because what it does, what many of these interventions do, is they introduce potentially an upward spiral. So yes, I feel better for those two minutes, but it doesn't end there because then I'm, you know, I smile more at my kid who smiles back at me. And then I feel a little bit more energetic to do my work and I feel better and on and on and on in an upward spiral. So introducing these small changes, and this is an important idea to keep in mind, small changes make a big difference if we apply them consistently. Mm. Whether it's the three deep breaths, um, whether it's the, the, the gratitude, whether it's the moving, whether it's the you know, micro moments of intimacy, you know, uh, a, a hug, um, a, a, a smile, that they can go a, a long way. So small changes consistently applied can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, no, I think that's a great rundown of a lot of practical things that people can do in order to improve their happiness or at the very least just improve their sense of functioning when things are kind of falling apart externally. And one of the things that you're really well known for is, of course, your course at Harvard, which at one time was the most popular, I believe, in the university's history. Um, And one of the things that I'm personally curious about, maybe as somebody who's a little bit closer to university uh, in our conversation here, is that when students entered that classroom and and you first started interacting with them about these topics, what were some of the things that tended to really take them by surprise? Like, what were some of the the new things that they learned that they didn't expect? Yeah, so the the first thing, uh, and again, this was my, you know, during the first couple of weeks that I would talk about it, was that you're not going to get rid of those painful emotions. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to have them um, now and you'll have them when you're uh, much uh, older and wiser. Um, so, so that was the first thing. Then also the idea, and I, and I think this is what, and I speak to many of my students from 20 years ago. And I think one of the most important things that they got was, in a sense, a per- permission to pursue their passions. And, you know, that sounds trivial and, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a cliche uh, today. Uh, however, it's an important cliche because uh, there are so many pressures on us from the outside, whether it's uh, from our uh, elders, whether it's from society. Uh, and those expectations uh, take us very often to a place which is, um, which is not our own, and we pay a price for it. So there are, I, you know, I have students who, who thought that they needed to go into a, 
banking and ended up going to teaching and the opposite as well. I have students who felt guilty going into banking, but in a sense, um, realized mm-hmm. that it's mm-hmm. okay to pursue your passions and do that. So, so, so I think that was a very important uh, takeaway. Another thing, priorities. You know, I'm not against ambition. I'm not against hard work. Uh, I'm not against, um, you know, the, the, the material successes or the American dream. Uh, far from it. However, what I am against is giving up on the most important generators of what I've come to call the ultimate currency, the currency of mm. happiness. And that is to prioritize relationships. You know, there's a lot of research uh, showing, you know, time and again, that relationships are the number one predictor and it's relationships, family relationships, it's um, um, uh, professional relationships, and it's, uh, you know, relationships with our, with our friends, um, that they matter, and they matter a lot. In fact, you know, that uh, there are psychologists today, after looking at the research, who say, that the secret to happiness, and I'm against secrets, but the secret to happiness is um, cultivating the, the important intimate relationships in your life. One of the things that I've been reflecting on just listening to you here is <clears throat> your own choices uh, to not move into becoming a tenure track professor, which obviously was for you. And that goes to the larger point you're making about the individuality of one's path through this life that, you know, is your best dodge strategy for cultivating your own happiness. And while a person, let's say, who's naturally a teacher can still find happiness as a banker or vice versa, uh, the more that we're living a life that's suited to our own nature, whatever that might be, uh, is going to promote our own happiness better, including appreciating the ways in which, as you well know, Social science research is essentially about the average of groups, and we always need to be careful about generalizing from that average to all the individual members of the group and so on. So obviously some people are especially benefited by relationships as a factor of their individual happiness, while other people maybe are more introverted or they pursue a a more of a solitary life. So in that framework, I'm just kind of wondering if I could probe here or pry. Uh, I am a therapist after all. Uh, How was it that you made a choice to go the way you've gone in your own career? And also, what have you learned about yourself in terms of the kinds of things that uh, specifically support your own happiness? So, so first of all, to start in terms of the process, it wasn't easy. So it's not mm-hmm. that you know one day I woke up and said, okay, my path in life is uh, philosophy and psychology. I want to study happiness, and that is what I'll do. Uh, I did feel the pressure. The pressure affected me to go in, um, in, in ways that other people thought I, I should go. And, um, you know, many of these decisions, and, and I'm just going to go broad and then I'll, and then I'll delve, you know, I'll, I'll be more personal. One of my, my, my teachers in, in graduate school was Joseph Badaracco, and he actually taught uh, a class on ethics. And uh, he said, mm-hmm. look, you know, making a decision between right and wrong, that, that's easy. Yeah, should you lie or should you be honest? Not, not a problem. Should you hurt someone or help someone? We know the answer. The difficult decisions are between right and right options. And in life, we have many right versus right decisions that we need to make. One of them is, do I pursue my path or do I do what, you know, partially pursue my path and then fulfill my parents' desire? Because, you know, my, my parents matter. 
and they love me and I love them and I, and I want them to be happy? Do I do something that focuses on, 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 on my passions or do I think more about how I can help help the world? Even though the two, you know, usually overlap, they don't always overlap. Um, so these are right versus right decisions and they are by their nature difficult and, and sometimes painful to make because it means that if you decide one, you, you necessarily pay a price. But when, when I realized that the path that I want path that I wanted to take is the path that I ended up taking was actually doing a thought experiment that uh, that I came up with and uh, I've um, my students have been doing it for for years now to greater or less with greater or lesser uh, effectiveness it works for some more than others but it's the following it, it, it's about a spell of anonymity imagine that a spell of anonymity has been cast on you from now on and for the rest of your life no one will know what you're doing. No one will know uh, how rich you are. No one will know um, what amazing um, works you have, uh, you have completed. No one will know about your, your books or success or how good you are and how helpful you are. No one but you alone will know of all the things that you do. In such a world where you're anonymous, what would you do? That's a genius question. Yeah, that's quite the question for sure. It's a tough question because you know, yeah. and so so my, my students do it. They they have a um, they have to write a reflection paper uh, on it. And the point that I make when they do it is, it doesn't mean that we need to do what this exercise prescribes that we do. Um, but what it does do is raise our levels of awareness about um, about our you know what psychologists call our self concordant goals or what we more uh, generally call our passions, uh, where we are intrinsically rather than extrinsically motivated. And it's a very important exercise uh, to do. So I did it a, a few times. I still, by the way, uh, do it every, every few years. Um, and when I did it the first time, I was a graduate student. And my answer to that at that time was, if no one knew what I was doing, I would leave. I would no longer be wow. a graduate student because it was a time when I, was, uh, I had just failed my general exams. Uh, and I had to retake it. I was very unhappy. But then I said to myself, okay, but it is important for me to teach at a university. Mm -hmm. And for teaching in university, not absolutely necessary, but it certainly helps to get your, uh, your PhD. So I stayed on. When I completed my PhD, I did it again. And there was a lot of pressure on me from the outside to continue on the traditional uh, academic path. Pressure put on me by people who really cared about me. They said, look, okay, so you just publish now for five years and then you're golden. Then you're yeah. all set. The, I did the exercise and based on this exercise, I left the traditional academic path. It was still a right versus right decision. How did you find the courage to do that? I don't think I found it or, or, or looked for it. I think the downside... It was the downside that was clear because I remembered what I felt like before when I wasn't pursuing my passions. I, I didn't want to go back there. So, you know, very often it's our, you know, pain that, that leads to, to change. So just as, you know, switching from computer science where I felt very comfortable uh, to the humanities, you know, I, had, I didn't read a book until I was 20 years old other than what I absolutely had to read for, for school. And even then I would, if I could, I read the cliff notes. I did not read a book. I felt very comfortable with numbers, not at all with, um, with the humanities or, or even social sciences. You know, you haven't used this word yet, but it's implicit in so much of what you've said, 
authenticity, mm. being true to oneself. You, for you, I, what I'm hearing is it wasn't like you had to sweat into a very courageous choice. It was simply a matter of more of giving over to being true to yourself as you had learned yourself to be from previous experience. It's difficult to be happy when we're phony, including putting on a faux happiness persona, Yeah, which tends to, which there's a certain force around that. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles with a certain amount of happy entertainment business. You're always trying to, or in the self-help world, you're kind of pitching your own personal realization. So you have to wear the mask of being really happy all the time. And that will make you unhappy and eat away at your soul through and through. Yeah, you know, Rick, as, as you were talking, I'm thinking about the, the world today and, and social media. I mean, you yeah. know, what, what do we find on social media? We find people's best moments. So, and, and, the, and the problem is that, um, you know, we see it and everyone is, has, is doing great. Everyone is self-actualized. You know, everyone is, uh, you know, has the perfect work, perfect family, perfect life. Everyone except for me. And I don't want to appear like I'm the outlier here. So I put, sim- put on similar facades, similar pictures. And in fact, what I'm doing is I'm contributing to the great deception that is so much responsible for the Great Depression. Um, we pay a high price for it. I, I would love to talk with you about something that I think is kind of implicit in, in the whole conversation that we've had so far and in social media and in what you've said about your pursuit of happiness coming from this feeling of not happiness in, inside of yourself initially back in the day. One of the common critiques that I've run into in the field of personal development broadly, maybe mostly in positive psychology, is the idea that pursuing happiness can actually pull people away from it. Um, For example, as you're probably familiar with, there was a study, I think in 2018, that found that people who seek happiness felt like they had less time availability, which then led to them feeling less happy, you know, kind of ironically. So I have to imagine that you've run into this critique before, and I would love your take on it. Yeah, I'm so so glad you brought this up, Forrest, because Mm -hmm. um, this is important research and work not just for you know people hearing about happiness or reading the you know the the random book about happiness it's an important topic to discuss for experts on happiness because most people don't understand it and and, mm. and just how how important it is so you know the research by Iris Moss shows that people who wake up in the morning and say to themselves, you know, happiness is important for me, or it's valuable for me, or I want to pursue happiness, um, actually end up being less happy uh, for for various reasons, you know, whether it's time, whether it's uh, loneliness, uh, whether it's uh, expectations that, uh, in in, in the words of Galloway, Kinnell are marring their experiences of the present. There are many reasons why that happens. But, you know, we have a problem. Because on the one hand, what all the research very clearly shows is that happiness is a good thing. You know, I mentioned earlier, happiness makes you a better person. Happiness uh, makes you more creative, more productive, more successful, enjoy better relationships, live longer. I mean, on every parameter that you look, happiness is a good thing. But now you're telling me I shouldn't value it. You know, you have a sort of a a, a paradox, a contradiction. Um, So what do you do about it? And fortunately, there is an answer to it that... Philosophers spoke about this uh, in the past, most notably uh, John Stuart Mill back in uh, 1859. And what they talked about was pursuing happiness indirectly. 
And let, let me um, use a metaphor to, to explain. Let, let, let's use the sunlight as a metaphor. If I look at the sunlight directly, that's going <laughs> to hurt me. That's going to cause a lot of pain. So what can I do instead? I can look at it indirectly, break it down into its elements, and then pursue those elements. So I use a prism, and I have the rainbow. And then I can enjoy the rainbow and uh, enjoy its beauty and pursue it. Same with happiness. Pursuing it directly will lead to unhappiness. But what if I break it down into its elements? What if I break it down into the spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional elements, which, by the way, spell spire? So it's an e easy way to, to remember. What if I pursue spiritual well-being? For example, I wake up in the morning and say, you know, I want to do work that is meaningful or find the meaning in the work that I'm doing. Or what if I say, I'm going to spend 10 minutes meditating, focusing on the breath going in and out. That's spiritual well-being. That's pursuing happiness indirectly. Or talk about physical well-being. Start to exercise regularly or remind myself every 30 minutes to take a few steps or eat more healthfully? Or how about intellectual well-being? Learn new things. Read and uh, indulge my rational capacity. Or relational well-being. Spend time with people when the phone is off and I'm focusing on being with them. Or emotional well-being. Keep a journal or do the gratitude exercise. These are all ways of pursuing happiness indirectly. And through mm. that, uh, I can have the, you know, the best of both worlds. Value the ultimate currency, and at the same time, not pay the price that we do would pay if we pursue the metaphorical sunlight directly. I think that it's true that if we pursue happiness by putting pressure on ourselves and very tightly monitoring how happy am I, how happy am I, how happy am I, that's going to lead to unhappiness. On the other hand, if a person has a general stance of valuing their own well-being, and uh, treating themselves as if they matter. And in that large frame, pursue various causes of happiness, like the ones you've identified there in that Spire model, which is a beautiful model. Well, then clearly there is a certain intentional aspect to um, one's pursuit of happiness in the broadest sense. That's really okay. Uh, and it seems to me, and I think that's consistent also with what you had to say. And v v very much so. And you know, it's, um... I guess it's about sort of finding moderation. Mm -hmm. You know, it reminds me, so, so Socrates said, you know, the unexamined life is not worth yeah. living. Yeah. Uh, I would add to that, that the over-examined life is tedious. So, you know, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so it's finding sort of, you know, the, the, the golden mean. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, to just give one kind of final level of comment on it, I guess. Um, it sounds like there's a distinction you're drawing there that's really key just between process goals and outcome goals, where if you just fixate on the distant outcome goal of happiness, then that can have some challenges associated with it for a variety of different reasons. But if you focus on the kind of granular process goals that will inevitably move you down that stream, things tend to turn out a good bit better for people. Yes, I never made this connection, but it's, uh, it's very clearly there. Great. Awesome. Yeah. I do have one question that um, because we've We've referenced research so many times during this conversation, and you have, of course, a wonderful knowledge of the research. And one of the things that I do for these episodes is we put together show notes on, on Patreon that go into the research behind it. You've really watched the field over a period of time, and so I'm curious, as somebody who's been so involved with it, 
What are some of the things that you have seen really change in, say, the last 20-ish years in terms of our perception of happiness and like what matters? I don't know if there has been anything radical for, mm. for a simple mm-hmm. reason, because um, there weren't any radical insights to start with. Mm. Um, meaning to point. start with, it all seemed uh, like common sense. Yeah, spend more quality time with people you care about and who care about you. Yes, express gratitude, um, you know, exercise. So a lot of these things are common sense. Uh, however, as Voltaire once said, uh, common sense is not so common. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, especially when it comes to application. And I think this is where a lot of the change came about. How do you bring about lasting change? Great. You know, this this is the most important element and, and more and more um, research has been done on this and some great research, whether it's by, you know, on cultivating expertise by uh, Anders Ericsson, whether it's by Roy Baumeister, you know, whether it's, you know, some more popular books about uh, by Duhigg on, on, on habit or, or fog on um, creating the conditions to bring about lasting change. And I think this is where the most important work is done because, you know, a, a lot of the choices that we have in life are what I've come to call rhetorical choices. You know, just like uh, rhetorical question, rhetorical questions. You know, rhetorical questions are questions we know the answer to. You know, do you want me to be upset with you or happy with you? Well, of course. So the rhetorical choices are, for example, do you want to be grateful for the things that you have in your life and appreciate them, or do you want to take the good things in your life for granted? And do you want to be a kind and nice person, or do you want to be uh, harsh and unpleasant? I mean, rhetorical choices. So the problem is not that we don't know what we ought to do, the kind of life that we want to lead. We usually know. The problem is that we usually don't apply or often, not often, we don't apply often enough. So what we need to do is create reminders in our lives. What we need to do is create healthy habits in our lives that make the right uh, choice automatic. And, um, And through that, that is how we raise our levels of happiness. So there is a lot more emphasis in the research today on precisely that. How do you create those, uh, those habits that uh, transform, literally transform, change the form of a life? I think that this question you're raising is absolutely central. And as a longtime therapist, psychologist in the change business, as it were, it's been astonishing to me that there hasn't been a systematic theory of social-emotional change that's embedded neurologically in our own bodies. And so that's been a major area of my work. And um, one of the things that's just really striking, if we talk about lasting shifts from states to traits, uh, that's a process of social-emotional learning, which must involve some kind of neuroplastic change. And what I've seen a lot is that when people talk about building different experiences, they're very often talking about um, changing states and having upward spirals of state to state to state, and yet there's not an attention to the underlying development of trait happiness, trait gratitude, trait self-compassion, trait self-worth, trait sense of meaning and purpose, and other trait relationship skills and other factors of durable happiness. And to me, that's where I think the opportunity is. States are easy. It's traits. How do we cultivate social, emotional, positive traits over time. Exactly. And, and, and again, you know, you, 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 you obviously, uh, you do talk about it in your work. You know, a lot of it is about repetition. A lot, of, a lot of it is about, you know, creating those rituals. And over time, uh, our brain does change. Yeah. 
through internalization. I wanted to slip a question in. I know we're gonna we have a couple wrap up questions. We're gonna finish soon, but you work a lot with business. You work a lot with leadership. You've got some really great initiatives. We're gonna highly encourage people to to check out your work. And I just wondered, what's it like to walk into a hardcore profit oriented corporation mm. and talk about happiness? as somehow a value in its own right, or even a value that leads to a bottom line result? Yeah. So, you know, if I went to a to managers in organizations and said to them, look, I am going to help your employees become happier. I'm going to help you become happier. They will probably say something to the effect, that is great. Uh, would love to have you for our Christmas party. <laughs> as, you know, entertainment, edutainment. Um, however, if I go to them and I say, which is what I actually do, look, uh, I'm going to increase levels of happiness, or rather, you're going to increase levels of happiness. And as a result, your uh, employees will become more productive, more creative. Teamwork will actually improve. And I share with them all the research, the data that, that shows that. Now that becomes interesting. Yeah, yes, for sure. And, um, you know, it's the same. We, we, we have a program where we go into schools and... Uh, we had a real difficulty introducing the program into, into schools when, when we uh, suggested that it will make their students and, and teachers happier. They just didn't have time in their curriculum. So a few schools fortunately took us in, and then we did research on it. And what the research showed was that, yes, the students became happier, more resilient, and as a byproduct, their grades improved. So uh -huh. they performed better. And as soon as we published it, suddenly so many schools became interested. <laughs> wait, wait, you mean grades matter? <laughs> At least to schools? And, I, and the thing is, I don't care. I don't care if that is mm. how we got into these schools. Yeah. As long as we're in. And the same with organizations. The way, the way in is to show ROI, return on investment. And if that brings in more happiness for them and the employees, then it's a win-win. It's a win in, in, in dollars and cents, as well as in the ultimate currency. I think it's a great way to think about it all. And I'm, I'm glad that you have a, a pragmatic viewpoint here, which I think is sometimes lacking inside of these conversations. So moving toward the end, there is a final question that we like to ask everyone who comes on the show. And I'm interested in your answer because of some of the personal sharing that you've done around maybe not having been so happy. Um, when you were going through some of these considerations around where you wanted your research and your work to land in your life. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to yourself as a child, as a young adult, somebody who's going through these experiences, what would you want to say to that person? Um, I actually thought about that hmm. because I, I thought about what, how would my class be different from 20 years ago? Meaning, what would I, because you know, I teach things that are very personal, me search, research. How would it be different? And I think the main thing that today, and that is what I would tell myself, whether as a 15-year-old or a, you know, a 30-year-old, is think about expectations in a more nuanced way. <laughs> and what do I mean by that? So, you know, there's a lot of research in psychology um, on the importance of having high expectations. Um, bec why? Because beliefs become self-fulfilling prophecies. So if you believe in students, the Pygmalion effect, they will become more successful. If you have hope, you know, Rick Snyder's theory, uh, you're more likely to succeed as a business person or as an athlete. So having high expectations is connected to success. Now, when I was younger, 
I also applied this very same lens to happiness. Whereas when it comes to happiness, it's different, more nuanced. What do I mean? So for example, if my expectation is that, okay, now I'm not happy, but I'm going to study happiness and become an expert in happiness. And my expectation is that I'll be happy all the time, speaking about it in a eudaimonistic sense. I'm bound to be disappointed, frustrated, anxious, unhappy as a result of these unrealistic expectations. Mm. Uh, second, I'll, I'll give you another example. If I go into a relationship, you know, um, I'm, I'm in love, we decide to get married, and my expectation is that we will live happily ever after, that from now on, uh, it's the honeymoon. I'm bound to be disappointed, upset, frustrated with my partner and with myself. I need realistic expectations. Now, what are realistic expectations? You know, life is about ups and downs. There are difficulties, there are, hard, there are hardships, they're inevitable. Every relationship, even the best of them, um, is, uh, is, has conflicts and disagreements and, uh, and, and periods when we're frustrated and angry. This is all part and parcel of living a full and fulfilling life. So this is what I would, I would tell myself. And, you know, uh, people ask me, uh, especially since The Secret came out, the book, People have been asking me, Tal, what is your secret to happiness? And my response is always, come on, what do you take me for? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an academic. There's no secret to <laughs> happiness. There are three secrets to happiness. And here they are. The first secret to happiness is reality. The second mm. secret to happiness is reality. Do you want to guess the third secret? <laughs> Reality, right? So it's about keeping it real in terms of, mm. and, and, and in this context, it's about keeping it real when it comes to our expectations. Mm -hmm. And that pressure we can place upon ourselves due to those expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we let you go here, Tal, I just want to give you an opportunity to let people know about the work you're doing right now, the Happiness Studies Academy, and all of that related stuff. Thank you. So, um, so I co-founded the Happiness Studies Academy uh, three years ago. We have uh, year-long certificate programs, which are about uh, responding to two questions. The first question is, how can uh, I become happier? The second question is, how can I help others become happier? And uh, the certificate program draws on uh, psychology and neuroscience and philosophy and uh, e economics and literature. So it's a very comprehensive interdisciplinary approach mm. to the good life. As part of the Happiness Studies Academy, we also offer programs uh, for schools, for first grade to, to 12th grade, as well as to the general public. That's awesome. It's fantastic work. I yeah. highly recommend your work. I just want to put my name on the line here in my Im imprimatur. Uh, it's just fantastic. It's integrated, it's solid, it's rooted in research. And it's soulful. Mm. It really honors the authentic, soulful, you know, unfolding and expression of who the person actually is. Thank you, Rick. That, that, that means a lot to me. Thank you so much for doing this, Tal. Truly, it's been a total pleasure today. Thank you, Forrest. Thank you, Rick. And uh, I hope to meet soon and hopefully live. <laughs> yeah, that would That'll be, be fun. much better. Today, we had the absolute pleasure of talking with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. It was a great and, for me personally, really quite fascinating conversation with him on the practical science of happiness and what really matters in our lives. Uh, one of the first things that Paul said, which is really going to stick with me, is how important it is 
to accept all the aspects of our experience. The positive emotions, the negative emotions, the times where we're going through a really challenging experience like many people are these days, and the moments that we have naturally as people where we can look at our own negative experiences, our own negative sensations, and particularly if you've done any kind of personal development work, really get sort of down on ourselves for having that negative sensation and maybe naturally going, wow, I listened to all of these Being Well podcasts and I read all these books. Why am I not happy right now? And his point was that there were only two types of people that don't experience negative emotions. Sociopaths and people who are dead. So if you're experiencing a negative emotion, hey, it's not such a bad thing. It means you're not a sociopath and you're still alive. And both of those are pretty great. And Tall offered a great reflection toward the end on some of the research that suggests that people who pursue happiness end up less happy than people who don't for some reason. And his point was that, yes, if you focus on the outcome goal of happiness, it's going to be tough because happiness is a constant work in progress, so you're not necessarily going to experience that anything good is happening. Or maybe it just feels like you're Sisyphus constantly pushing this boulder up a hill only to have it roll back and smash you in the face. But instead, if you focus on process goals, the little things like exercising or taking time for yourself or really taking in the rewarding experiences that we all naturally have in the course of a day, if you focus on doing those things, then happiness will almost naturally follow as a result. And I thought that that was a really nice clarification on a subject that often gets people kind of bogged down in minutia. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, leave a positive rating and review, and hey, maybe even tell a friend about it. The best way to let people know about the podcast is through word of mouth. We've really been growing recently, and personally, I found it just incredibly gratifying to see that, and I really do deeply appreciate it. Also, quick reminder about Rick's Positive Neuroplasticity Training Course. That's the PNT. You can find a link to it in the description of today's episode. And if you enter the code BEWELL50 at checkout, you'll get $50 off the purchase price. Also, another reminder that we have a free giveaway going on. You can enter the giveaway again through the link in the description of today's show. You do have to live in the United States in order to enter, which I'm sorry about. I wish we could ship more easily internationally, but there are some regulations around that that make it kind of tough for us to do a giveaway in other countries. Finally, all that said, we have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. We're developing a great community over there. If you subscribe to it, you will both support the show and receive a variety of awesome bonuses in return, including expanded show notes where I really go into the research behind each episode. And uh, Tal was talking about a lot of things today that I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to expand on in some detail in the show notes. So the show notes for this episode will probably be a pretty loaded one. So until next time, thanks for listening to the podcast.